no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Bells will be ringing, the glad, glad news. Oh, what a Christmas to have the blues. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Ralph, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm good, Adam. How are you? I'm doing well. We're excited to be joined by local musician, documentary maker, overall cool dude, Bo Jennings. Bo, how are you? I'm doing great, Adam and Ralph. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the juxtaposition of the end of the world and the holiday season. The it's kind my, of thing, the kind of thing that presents us all with a challenge. It's my favorite place to be. <laughs> <laughs> Which way are you going to go? <laughs> um, we spent uh, the last episode very briefly. We got off topic, and I started talking about the uh, the new Blackwatch Christmas record. Uh, or holiday record. Which that wasn't you... off topic. That was a transition. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I think I think we were actually talking about movies at the time, and yeah. somehow somehow I got on on the topic because or, or Black Friday or something. I think it was Black Friday is how we got there. Anyways, yeah. there's no need to recall that. You can listen to that episode if you'd like to. But you actually put out a track on that. Uh, have you done that before? Is this the first one you've done, or this is the second uh, Christmas song I've written for that series? The first one was. I think four years ago. So yeah. What's uh what's the title of the track? Uh the one I just recorded the one that came out this year is called Dark and Stormy Christmas. <laughs> and the one from four years ago is called Christmas Bus. Nice. So tell us about Dark and Stormy Christmas. Is it cause I my my natural inclination would be get the ginger beer, get the dark rum. Right. There you go. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> I didn't think of the uh, of the reference to the drink till later I was it was I was literally thinking of, I was imagining um, well the last few Christmases in Oklahoma have been warm and not they, they haven't felt very Christmas like and I was meditating on that idea a little bit of of uh, uh, you know extreme weather that's not winter time winter wonderland weather during Christmas yeah and uh I just kind of went from there with it. Yeah, there's there's certainly something that happens when it's like Christmas morning and it's like 50 degrees out that just seems really, you know, really disjointed. It's like I lived in LA, I lived in L.A. for a while, and uh, at Christmas the Scientology people would roll out this snow carpet on this parking lot, and we would just go like look at it and laugh because it was so you know it's like 75 degrees out and there's a snow carpet in a parking lot, and it was just so much of a bad juxtaposition. So, right, yeah, I I've grown to as I got old as I get older, I really appreciate when you can really nail that Christmas weather. On Christmas Day, it it goes so far. Um, I can appreciate other other stuff, but if you can if you can get your classic white Christmas, it it's fantastic. Yeah, there's a you know there was a, a radio piece I listened to where somebody was talking about because people always think of this like traditional. We talked about Dickens and Christmas Carol last week a little bit. This idea of like you know a snowy Victorian Christmas, and that only happened twice. Like the actual number of times that it's actually been snowy 
in London on Christmas. It doesn't happen that often. Mm. It's only happened like three or four times over the past 150 years. So it's just not a common occurrence. At least that's what I was led to believe. I haven't fact-checked this yet, but yeah, <laughs> that's there's what a, they told me. There's a weird magic there because, uh, I, I mean, why else would you go to um, uh, Silver Dollar City? <laughs> but people flock there. And I find myself wanting to go around the holidays. Just I don't want to ride the rides. I don't want to see the plays. I don't want to. I don't want any other food or drink. I just kind of want to be in that, like you said, that Dickin, Dick, what's yeah, the D- adjective? Dickensian yes. uh, yeah. world. Was actually, in November, December. Yeah, that was actually the f- the first date that my uh, wife and I went on was to there's a there's a Victorian walk in downtown Guthrie that they do like two weekends over the year where they all, they all dress up in that type of attire and, you know, sell newspapers in the, the street corner. Oh, okay, I have a trivia question for you. Okay, yeah. About Victorian Christmas. Okay. Okay, what meat did poor Victorians eat on Christmas Day? So here, I'll give you a little okay. little couple uh, setup anyway. In Northern England, roast beef was the traditional fare for Christmas dinner, while in London and the South, goose was the favorite. Mm. I almost said goose, but I thought it was a trick question. Yeah. So you're going to have to go, what's what's the next step down from goose? I don't know. In Dr. Seuss, it's roast beast, right? Roast beast, yes. Pheasant? Which covers quail? everything. Is it a bird? It's not a bird. It's a rabbit. Ah, so they would eat rabbit. There you go. So there you go. Yeah, which actually is not a not a bad alternative. Should you be into eating, you know, animals? I should have guessed that. I've been reading my kids this Beatrix Potter book about uh, uh, Peter Rabbit, and they um, they're able to avoid being uh, cooked for dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always a good idea if you can avoid that. That's the thing that makes the holidays a little bit more suspenseful. Sticking um, around. Right. <laughs> uh, Bo, can you talk just a little bit, I know this is personal to everyone who does this, but about your songwriting process and if it changes at all as you go after something like a holiday song. Um, I've written a handful of in holiday songs, and I used to not, uh, well, I don't even, it's hard to say. It's different every time uh, with this new song dark and stormy christmas i was just kind of looking for a a different you know a different angle to approach holiday music and that's a pretty um expansive idea you know what is what is holiday music or christmas music i was just trying to meditate on you know that theme of a dark and stormy christmas and what does that mean and where can you go with that but overall, my songwriting process, it's different every time. As I've gotten older and written more songs, I've tried to simplify it a whole bunch. And so if you were to listen to my new, my new Christmas song, Dark and Stormy Christmas, it's very simple. There's not, very, there's not a whole lot of lines or verses to it. If you were to listen to the one I did from a few years ago called Christmas Bus, it's, it's too wordy. It's too long. It's like a... Uh, it's like an old Bob Dylan song. It's it's too much, but I was it was kind of too much on purpose. But I haven't I haven't had the uh, I haven't been compelled to make that kind of music lately. Um, so it's different every time. But lately, I've I've been trying to simplify things a lot. When you go into um, 
into Blackwatch to record this. I mean, how much, how much do you have uh, creative freedom to do it, it what, or what to it, what you want, and how much uh, does a does a producer play into how these songs come together? Are they fairly, you know, that whoever comes in as an artist, you know, it comes out sounding like them, or how much does the role of the production play into it? Um, th- I mean that that's that can be a pretty subjective answered based on the studio and the artist. Um, in my case, I've recorded there quite a bit over the years, and I know the producers and engineers there really well. So if I were to have strong opinions or a strong vision for a song, I would feel comfortable uh, communicating that and say, let's, let's go this way. In this case, working with them, they, uh, they're so adept and um, they have so many ideas of their own that I've I, I like going in there and kind of doing, releasing the song to them absolutely yeah. I do the bare minimum um, because I trust them yeah to take it to an interesting place and so that's a nice that's a nice uh, perk of recording there is I can it, like you said I can release it yeah mm-hmm. so when so when you're like starting to conceive of something like say a song for the holidays how do you uh, like is there stuff you listen to or do you escape because i think music at christmas time is an interesting thing because on the one hand you're kind of surrounded by it in this kind of commercial way which can like make you want to in the middle of tj maxx just you know cut a hole in your head um and it seems to drain the sincerity out of it on the other hand really good musicians have done some really good work with that as the theme. Dylan's not one of them, by the way. Um, in fact, if you really want to hurt yourself, I think spending a good 15 minutes with Bob Dylan's Christmas record, um, and I love everything he does except that. <laughs> it's it's a painful experience. It is painful, and I've also spent a lot of time with it, and I, I don't know why I do that. <laughs> I give, it's like maybe, maybe Christmas and the holidays are about hope and about <laughs> renewed... Uh, uh, you know, another chance. Yeah. Maybe that's subconsciously happening. And I say, oh, I'm going to give this a chance. Yeah. That's a good idea, actually. Maybe I will, because I haven't. I remember hearing it a few years ago and thinking, and, and actually I saw him. He played in Oklahoma City not too long after I heard it the first time. And I thought, yeah, he's just really, and I guess he did go through some physical health problems that were part of a contributing factor to how that, to the feel of that. But it was just like, mm, man, just not, not. Not the right holiday, not the right, you know, maybe the Bob Dylan Halloween album would have been a better idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, and I'm, I'm like you, he, he might be my favorite artist and um, a lot of it's just inexcusable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just, yeah, I, got, I, I did get the sense and I, you know, I don't, I never mean to question people's motives when they're doing art, but that it was just kind of lazy in a way. And you know, there's so there's a couple of other uh, a couple of other artists who've done things where, like Amy Mann, is a particular favorite of mine. She's one of the best Christmas albums, and partly because there's some things in it that are really hilarious. Like she does a cover of the the song from The Grinch that's fantastic, and then she does these really depressing <laughs> Christmas songs, and they're just like they're really whole new ways of thinking about you know, kind of like the feel of the holiday season. Mm-hmm. That fit in with her style and everything like that. So, what do you what do you listen to when this time of year rolls around? Say, if someone was to ask you your top five holiday albums. Oh, I don't think I have anything too original or insightful to add there. Um, the stuff that my favorite, probably my all time favorite, would be the uh, 
uh, the Peanut soundtrack, the uh, uh, Vince Guaraldi tri uh, trio. Mm -hmm. Vince Guaraldi trio. It's all instrument. Well, there is um, some vocals actually on it, but um, the cr on Christmas time is here. But otherwise, that's that one stands the most repeat listens to me. I really like that band Low from hmm. Minnesota, and they have a really great Christmas record too. Um, I like the Frank Sinatra one. He's probably got several, but uh, the one I have in my iTunes was, you know, the top one that pops up. Mm -hmm. And uh, that one I can listen to quite a bit. Um, then I think beyond that, there's just random uh, one-off songs that I really, uh, really enjoy. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a uh, Christmas album by Bruce Coburn that's actually quite good. Um, and he's, you know, because he's a very sincere person of the Christian faith. So there's a lot of that in it too, but there's also some stuff that's just fun that he does also. And I've, and you know, again, Bruce Coburn's just had a stellar career and his, uh, it, it brings out sort of the more folky side of him. So kind of the older stuff he used to do. Sure. Yeah. I'll have to check that yeah, out. It's, yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. And then, um, um, one of my favorites is Suf John Stevens. Because he's just done an avalanche of Christmas stuff, and it's fantastic. Yeah, I I'm I'm a big fan of his, and I'm kind of with the Dylan. Back to the Dylan thing, it's some of it's really fantastic, and some of it's just garbage. And I feel like some of it's intentional garbage. Mm -hmm. Some of the throw throw away uh, one minute songs on his Christmas record. You know what I'm saying? There, yeah. There's, but I'm but I'm it doesn't. To me, it doesn't de devalue the work. It's just more of a, uh, hey, every everything goes, anything goes at the holiday. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you can go from like traditional to contemporary to, um, he's actually got a couple of fairly old pieces of music in there. One of the things that I like to do also is find, uh, you know, kind of really ancient Christmas music, like uh, medieval carols and things like that. Because mm -hmm. there's something very that provides a completely different kind of atmosphere too and uh just kind of break things up a little bit makes it feel a little bit less commercial yeah um I, and we should also say something about uh one of the one of the creepy songs that comes up this time of year which is uh, let it snow okay give me the background story i don't know this well, <laughs> it's um uh you have to kind of listen to it um and it's a, it's kind of a you can't leave song. Oh, it's not let it snow. Yeah, it's, it's um. You're oh, talking yeah, about it's um, cold outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah baby, yeah. it's cold. Yeah, right. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. This like you know this creepy winter. You're not just stuck inside. You're trapped inside, right? Yeah. <laughs> I've I've seen a lot of debate about that song. Too. Yeah. I've seen a lot of conversations over the last couple of years on, go out on Facebook, and they swing both directions very quickly uh -huh. as to you know it, it, is uh, the protagonist really want to leave or does she not? You know, and there's, I mean, if you if you read it just word by word, it it sounds like the creepiest thing ever, but there's also some some argument. Towards maybe you know she she's she internalizes that she wants to stay but is sort of saying that she does that. I don't know. Well, yeah, that snake starts eating its tail real quick because <laughs> people. Uh, I've seen the conversation switch to okay, you got to listen to the context in which it was written, and women didn't right. have the um, what uh, what's the word? They didn't have empowerment, empowerment, or the agency or whatever to. Uh, to to say these things so she's in the context of the time she's 
making her case and uh yeah that, that that's a funny thing to follow yeah. it's you yeah. know what i find most offensive about that song though is when people do it and they do it too fast and their lines start overlapping each other <laughs> and it's just so hard to listen to yeah. and it's just it's so coy and, and I, I think that's the reason it's stuck around, right? Is it's a male female duet, and that's really it. The fact, you know, like like the fact that it's a song we can do together and come together and say, "Baby, it's cold outside." Right. <laughs> sure, but that's sure. it. Like, had, had it not had that element, how does this? How's that song stick around? <laughs> how does so many of them stick around? <laughs> well, there's, you know, fortunately, there are also some times that, uh, like, an older Christmas song gets transposed into a different cultural context. Like, I actually, love things that have been done where reggae artists have taken Christmas music and kind of redone them, and in some cases, politicized them a little bit because uh, it's a really interesting kind of different context to put it in yeah and um then there's uh, some of my favorite stuff is actually jazz christmas music because i'm gonna sound really arrogant and pretentious here i think jazz musicians have really good taste and so they can take like a a, a, a tune that's very saccharine and kind of turn it inside out and make it into something that's really musically engaging and kind of vamp on it and play with it and things like that, change the instrumentation around. So some of the Blue Note Christmas albums are just fantastic for doing things like that. I had a funny experience this morning. My son was uh, walking around the house, and he's seven. He was walking around the house humming uh, Deck the Halls. But he, I I promise, I this is true. He was humming the Mannheim Steamroller <laughs> melody with that strange minor note you're talking about. And I was like, "What?" He's holding on to that, yeah. And it made me think. It started thinking about that band Mannheim Steamroller. If you ever looked up videos of them online, you should do that. Uh, yeah. That's one of the one of the things where people do Christmas displays with the synchronized music, and a lot of them use Mannheim Steamroller, <laughs> and it's 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 really so it's kind of like you're saying it, you know because it's very dramatic and everything like that. So it's usually somebody's got some really weird idea of how elaborate a Christmas display is supposed to be. But if you look online, you can find somebody took that same technology and took one of the speeches from Glengarry Glen Ross and did that with the synchronized timing. And it's a very famous speech that Alec Baldwin does at the beginning of the film where he's talking about, basically he's telling a room full of salesmen, um, one of you is going to get a Cadillac, one of you is going to get steak knives, and the rest of you are going to get fired. And it's a whole speech about, and, and so it's just, you can find the video for it online. It's just funny to see a piece of film dialogue synchronized with Christmas lights in somebody's house. It's 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 great. Yeah, that's wild. Trans-Siberian Orchestra is another one of those yes, bands that yes. comes around like once a year, mostly through Christmas lights and and holiday stadium uh, concerts. Uh huh. Yeah, I'd yeah, like to see Rush do a Christmas concert. I think that would be that would be that cool. would be pretty epic. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple people. I don't know if we mentioned this last time. They just come around like once a year, and it's you know Mariah Carey all of a sudden has is on our television again. Yeah. Um, or Michael Bublé. You know, it's just all of a sudden we see we see them. <laughs> well, the, yeah. There's something there about you're asking. You're asking how do you prepare for, or how do you write a Christmas song? And I don't know if you, how do I articulate this? You can, you can write an original Christmas song, but what's Christmas about it? It's something that always comes up in my mind. And to some degree, there's not, there's nothing new you can add to the canon because it's, it was kind of established uh, in whatever, you know, the fifties or whatever, when, 
when you're hearing all these Frank Sinatra and all these classic songs are are coming out, and from then on, it's just going to keep getting uh, diluted and eventually just be music that mm-hmm. you happen to play in December. But to me, Christmas music comes from that certain time and has that certain, would you call it like a post-war? Uh, uh, yeah, the kind of big band vocalist exactly. style. Yeah, that's what the Mel Torme um, Christmas song. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire and all that, which mm-hmm. is one of the ones where you can, where in my head I can actually see the history of it, right? See, it's when it was produced and who's done it since then and everything like that. And it's become definitely one of the standards of the season and everything. Whereas a lot of the other ones just are really too far away, you know. Yeah, it, I, I've had this similar thought too lately with just the idea of rock and roll music in general. And I've been playing music a long time, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I just had made this connection in my brain but the distinction between rock music and rock and roll music mm-hmm. people talk about let's say the Foo Fighters is a rock and roll band to me they're not a rock and roll band they're mm-hmm. a rock band mm-hmm. but the roll part kind of has that swing yeah that kind of thing rooted in the blues mm-hmm. that I don't hear in I guess what you would call rock or modern rock so all that to say I was listening uh, I pulled up some Elvis the other day and uh hound dog came Mm -hmm. on and it was it was the wildest thing i'd heard in a long and i've heard that song a lot but when you listen to it fresh it is the most rock and roll thing you'll ever hear Mm -hmm. and you realize how far away things have gotten and the closer you get back to that source the more rock and roll you're going to be and so i guess to me the more the closer you get back to those original when christmas music was first commercialized and that people had money and people had money to spend and mm-hmm. you know it was all kind of that big machine that's when that's christmas music yeah there's me. kind of a commercialization too i think that happens to some of it because like the rock and roll you're talking about makes me think about specifically rockabilly which still has a lot of the kind of it's kind of that hybrid you know kind of like gospel country turned inside out and being played by somebody who you really don't want to live by right <laughs> kind of like scariness to yeah, it yeah. but it's very uh it's very uncommercial it's not really trying to be commercial and then on the other side surf me is i love surf music I, and i think christmas surf music um is fantastic <laughs> sure, sure. because it's such a you know such an interesting juxtaposition yeah there's a so i was listening to a podcast uh with an author named ian king who has a book called appetite for definition an a to z guide to rock subgenres oh. uh, which i would i would highly recommend or at least recommend a, a podcast so okay to listening to it i mean it, it, i think he goes into like 150 different subgenres of rock and I was listening to an emo podcast, you know, which is a, which, which is Wait, a highly, which high, uh, it's called washed up emo. Oh, I've heard that one. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who, this guy has a, has a website, I believe it's called, is this band emo.com or something like that. I mean, he's got a, he's got a very like hardliner definition of what emo is uh-huh. and you can type in a bunch of different bands and, and it will give nice. his response to, is the band emo or not. Very so. nice. Emo is such a strange. I, every time I hear emo, I just think about the changing fashion of uh, hot topic stores. Yeah, see, right? that, that would be not defined as emo, <laughs> right? By, yeah. by, but it tried. By, it by, tried by, so by the holders, hard. yeah, of the definition, the gatekeepers. That's right. Right, the people just, who say yes or no. Oh, the other little subgenre that I wanted to make sure to mention is um, because New Orleans music is such its own thing, 
right? It's got its own traditions and its own kind of um, style. And um, there's uh, one of the non-commercial radio stations you can listen to online, particularly around Christmas time. They just have some of the greatest because New Orleans, you know, kind of puts its own imprint on everything. It goes through being turned into in, into New Orleans music. And you were mentioning about swing before, and it really swings. It's really good stuff. And there's there's a whole lot of it there that's that's definitely worth listening to. Yeah, that's good to know, too, because I do uh, make my way over to, like, the Christmas Channel, which is, like, an adult contemporary channel in, in Oklahoma. And they play like, the same, like, eight songs, like, over and over again, and they just get drilled down. They and, started the week before Thanksgiving, too. I accidentally stumbled across oh, them on really? my FM dial, and I was like, really, already? Mm-hmm. This seems really, yeah. you know, cashing it in. I don't know. It just seemed like <laughs> kind of a strange thing. Um, the other the other one that I wanted to mention also in passing is our family has a couple favorite Christmas tunes, and one of them is um, on probably our favorite Christmas album, which is The Chieftain's Bells of Dublin, which is a fantastic Christmas record. And it's got an Elvis Costello tune on it called The Feast of St. Stephen. And it's actually the St. Stephen's Day Murders. And it's about basically wanting to kill your family. Holy cow. <laughs> it's, I mean, not really wanting to kill your family, but just about, you know, the, the whole family tradition. Everybody comes over and then you're like, okay, it's time to go. And everybody's misbehaving. And, um, and uh, Elvis was just actually just played here uh, a week ago, and uh, I saw him, and he didn't play this tune, of course. Um, but uh, but it's it's St. Stephen's Day Murders is just a. It doesn't sound like a Christmas song. It's an odd kind of thing, but it has a little bit of the Victorian thing in it, and it's got Elvis's weird plays on words and things like that. So well, it's a shocking that it's the it's one of your family's favorites. <laughs> I would have never guessed. I'm trying to keep this light. I'm trying to not go dark here. <laughs> so what's your what's your go to? Um, well, it's funny. So when I got the Black Watch record, um, and Bo will appreciate appreciate this. I, I also picked up uh, for for the first time released on vinyl is Rosie Thomas Christmas album, uh, and uh, I picked that up for the first time. That's a that's a pretty popular one in our household, uh, and that's actually pretty popular year round because my wife listens to. Christmas music year round, usually in, in the car by herself. But uh, <laughs> does she but like I, sit on the driveway for like longer than necessary, singing along really loud? No. Tell me she does that because yeah. it's a great image. <laughs> Just tell me she does, whether she does or not. Yeah, she does. <laughs> she does. No, but that. Uh, but that was that's a really good record that, that just now got pressed for the first time, which is cool. And it was a a Black Friday exclusive release, so mm-hmm. that was that's cool. cool. To, I'll have to, to pick find. that one up. I know that record and. Um, I know some of those people that made that record and um, yeah, they did. That's a, that record's a good example of, to me, a Christmas record that plays enough classics. Right. And also has a handful a, of originals. Some that originals are really and then some, um, there's like the, uh, is it the Joni Mitchell song river? Mm-hmm. The Christmas song. She does that on there. And that's kind of a nice mid, middle of the road it's like a 70s folk song but it works really well as a a a traditional christmas song too to me um yeah the other um the 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 other 
part of what I usually well it's actually it's an it's an older thing that happened when I worked in radio which is around Christmas time record companies big and small would do kind of special releases one off singles CDs all sorts of different things that were just not really meant for the commercial environment and so uh, working in radio starting you know around Thanksgiving you would get these things and along with all the other stuff that you were that they were trying to get you to play you would get these really weird one offs uh, and one of my favorites I unfortunately couldn't I don't know where it is, somewhere in my house, but it's a it's a kind of uh, obscure band. I don't know anything about them except for this one song. It was a band called Purple Jesus, and they did a cover of the Chipmunks Christmas song that is absolutely hilarious. I may have mentioned this in our last mm-hmm. show, but it's just a hilarious piece of music. And so they do these really weird things where you would get this, like, white uh, label CD case with something stamped on the front, and inside were artists you may or may not have heard of doing all sorts of interesting uh, little bits and pieces of Christmas music. And some of the major labels would do it too. I remember there were a couple of years where Warner Brothers was doing these Christmas albums. They would get some of their you know sort of artists they could basically get into the studio to record something. Real interesting mix of people doing a variety of different things. Um, but uh, so I. I tell you my favorite, I, another Christmas record that I forgot to mention earlier that I've had on repeat a lot is um, I don't know if you know who Mark Kozelik is. Mm-mm. He's a um, he's a well he's most well known for his band Red House Painters. Okay, yeah. Or then later he had a band called Sun Kill Moon. Um, but he has a, a Christmas record under his own name, Mark Kozelik, and it's just him and guitar, and that's. I don't think there's any other instrumentation on the record. And uh, he's kind of known as, at least lately, his music, his songwriting has been real sarcastic and ironic and um, almost, uh, it's gotten gotten pretty strange. But when he started, he was a very sincere folk singer-songwriter guy. And he he does the songs straight up. He, He shoots straight with them. He plays them straightforward. And it's really great. Um, that's another one I would highly recommend. Oh, he does a cover. I was just looking at the. He does a cover of the Greg Lake, I believe, in Father Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of great stuff in there. Yeah, yeah he does the he Christmas does, song, the Mel Torme one. He does the. Uh, is it the Pretenders? Yeah, two thousand miles. Yeah, he does a great, a great solo acoustic version of that too. Uh huh. Oh, and he does Christmas Time is here, so that would mm-hmm. be the mm-hmm. the Vince Guaraldi link up. Yep. I was thinking when you mentioned the vocals on that, I was thinking about the uh, the like oh Christmas tree wordless choruses they do during that, sure. which are like amazing bits of production too. Sure. So I wanted to transition really quickly, just knowing um, your background, Bo, with creating a documentary and uh, Ralph teaching documentary filmmaking. Um, I thought it'd be fun to, to hear you guys have a conversation about that as well. So would you mind giving some background into documentary came out, what, a couple of years ago now? Uh, yeah, sure. My, uh, my documentary came out in 2015. I'd worked on it for probably, uh, I would say eight years from when I first had the idea to when it was released. So um, yeah, about eight years. And yeah, I, I didn't have any background in filmmaking. I just had an idea for a film. And uh, as, I would, as I would tell people about it, people would offer to help. And then I was able to put a team together to, to, to actually to, to make it and get it produced. Um, 
But yeah, the the basic premise of it is that I'm a, I had written songs about Will Rogers, who was a, uh, you'll know who Will Rogers is, but he was, personally, he was a, uh, a big hero of mine growing up, so I was writing music about him, and I wanted to make a record about Will, and so I thought, I want to make this record not just in a studio, but in a more interesting way, so I want to travel to where Will Rogers went during his life, and record these songs wherever that might take me and record it quote unquote in the field. So if it took me to, you know, a rooftop or if it took me to um, a lake or whatever interesting place I could be and the, the environment, the sounds of the, of the location would be part of the record. And so that was the idea of how to make the, uh, the, the actual audio part of the record. And then, you know, one thing led to another. We said, let's bring a photographer and capture this. And, well, maybe we should make a couple videos along the way. And eventually we felt like there was a bit of a story to tell. So that's how the documentary happened. Mm-hmm. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I noticed it's available online. So that uh, anybody who's listening, if you're interested in uh, watching the documentary, could you, I can give them the email address? Would that be the... Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I, sh- I should tell them the name. It's sure. called uh, The Vertigris in Search of Will Rogers. And so you can just www.thevertigrisfilm, one word, dot com, and you can watch it there, which, uh, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting thing. Also, you've done Woody Fest before, haven't you? I played there a few times, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. love Woody Fest. I think it's an amazing experience and it brings that all those elements like the I think the connection uh, with Will Rogers is part of this kind of Oklahoma culture that Woody Fest just hits like square on the head it does and at the same time uh, it's funny how they they're kind of different worlds and and they should be because they're different people Mm -hmm. but people um, as I was working on the Vertigris I know a lot of people would say things like Oh, that's really great. You're uh, making a record of Will Rogers' music. Um, and if you don't know, Will Rogers wasn't a singer. He wasn't a songwriter or a, you know. But I people confuse him yeah. and Woody Guthrie. Yeah. Um, they were from the same time. They're both from Oklahoma, and they were both, you know, of, of the same ilk in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, they, they are, like, it does make a lot of sense what you're saying. And at mm-hmm. the same time, there's a... There is a distinction that yeah. that's easy to yeah. Miss. There's a I think there's a confusion. I should mention that uh, Roy Clark died recently. He was part of kind of Oklahoma music royalty. Sure. And I think it was just two weeks ago or something like that that he passed away. Um, but you know, one of those people who's done who ama- who did some amazing music that if all you ever caught was he haw, you wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, he and and in fact, uh, kind of referencing what we were talking about earlier with kind of the rock and roll world, uh, Buck Owens, who was his partner on Hee Haw, I got around to listening to some of the Bakersfield sound stuff that Buck Owens was doing. These people had amazingly deep, broad music backgrounds that they brought, and it's just not something necessarily that translates well to commercial television. So, sure, <laughs> like sure. Woody Guthrie would, you know, not 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 made for primetime TV kind of uh, approach. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> It's interesting to think about, I mean, I, I, you said it's an eight-year project. I didn't realize, you know, that was how long it took from, you know, conceiving the idea to actually getting it out there. And I feel like it's probably one of those that, unlike a record today, I mean, today's like an interesting music world where you put out a record and it maybe 
you know, sticks around for it's such a short amount of time compared to what it used to. Like you could, you could live off a, a record for a year or two years, and now it's you know weeks maybe is how like you'd gauge it. But I feel like doing a documentary it gives you a little bit more, a little bit more time to kind of put something out, and it kind of comes back around. And there's potentials for you know other ways in which it gets dis- distributed or places in which it can be shown. You know, and, and uh, you, you you have that material to sort of work off. For a little bit longer than you might have with a with a, a traditional record now. I that's probably true to a degree. I think you might have a little more shelf life with something like that. I think in my case, um, there's not. I don't know of any other albums about Will Rogers besides the soundtrack to Will Rogers Follies, which I <laughs> did listen to and used for research, but I quickly threw it out because it. Not that it isn't good music or did what it was supposed to do, but it had nothing to do with what I was trying to do. But, um, yeah, there's I can only think of really those two records, mine and that, about as far as records about Will Rogers. And then films about Will Rogers, there's, there's a handful of them. But as far as what I was trying to do with mine, I feel like mine it kind of stands on its own in that sense. And so hopefully it can always be that one movie yeah. about Will Rogers that if you wanted to uh, learn more about him, it would be a resource. For yeah. Can I just add a, a, a kind of a documentary thinking, documentary filmmaker question? As a subject, how did your thinking about him change? Because that's a long period of time. And I think most people don't realize that documentaries are an enormous investment and that people who make them go through lots of changes over that time. How did your thinking about him change over the time of making the film? That's a good question. I, I, uh, I probably, I probably thought I knew. Well, obviously, but I, I thought I knew quite a bit about him before I started, and um, when I got done with it, I, I guess you you have this image of if you know anything about Will Rogers, you think of him as a um, a pretty saintly guy and a pretty happy guy that um that that had everything together and to a degree he did you you know one thing i kind of set out to do when i made the film was to um find that angle on will that other people maybe didn't you know what kind of maybe demons did he have or what was kind of driving him to do his thing and i was it was so hard to find that and I don't know if that's for lack of um, resources and you know cri- critical thinking about him mm-hmm. at the time, or or if it was just he just didn't have it. Yeah, maybe he never publicized that point where he, you know, buried the box at the crossroads and sold his soul to the devil. You know, that's just not part of the story. Well, and it <laughs> it got me thinking about the idea of. You know, I grew up Protestant, uh-huh. so this, these, this idea isn't really super familiar to me, but the idea of a saint, mm-hmm. um, and this is, this is by no means the definition of a saint, but it's this kind of roundabout way I've thought about saints lately, but these peop- there are these people we revere, and they're kind of held up as examples of how you could live your life. Um, and that's kind of how I've come to think of him I guess what I'm saying is 
I felt like nobody really had a complete picture of Will Rogers because you just it was hard to find that other side of the coin with him. And I just I, I came to kind of think that other side of the coin probably exists, but no one no one's really found it and it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. We you know, he he's someone that that not that he grew up without adversity, but you know, he's someone that that uh, exemplified all the things that we that we ideally would would strive for. Yeah, there's a, you know, I think that also his my sense. Tell me if if this was your sense too. But when he was well known, it was kind of a different kind of celebrity. Like he really wasn't in the Hollywood group as much. You know, he wasn't really so he didn't have that whole environment as much kind of driving everything that he was doing. And then after World War II, I think the whole nature of celebrity changes so much. Well, yeah, I think I think you got to remember he was kind of one of the first uh, celebrities in that sense. Mm-hmm. He was he was a famous actor before there was sound. Mm-hmm. So he was a pioneer in all these different mediums, radio, um, film, um, his uh, written column. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like there was one other. He was he was the number one guy in all these things at the same time. So he's really a pioneer in a lot of ways. Oh, uh, vaudeville. Yeah. Um, and and that's another thing that I feel like um, is interesting about Will is he died before World War Two, and it would have been so interesting um, to know what he would have said or done during that time mm-hmm. uh, what what his voice would have meant to people you know he used to um fdr during the depression would do you know what they called the fireside chat and he would address the nation on the radio i want to say it was sunday afternoons and will would essentially he was his warm-up act he would <laughs> he would uh talk for a little bit before fdr came on the radio so he had he was he was a little bit that uh you know that that voice of America. And so for that to have carried on through uh, World War II would have been really interesting. He ran for president in 1928. Not seriously. <laughs> yeah, some people put him up to, put him up to it. Yeah. He did totally say that. No. It's, yeah, it's really kind of funny that, yeah. that that was part of his whole his whole routine. Yeah, it's an, it, it's an interesting thing. I think vaudeville is one of those things that's so fundamentally formative to American celebrity entertainment culture. And it, but it's so like hard to understand because it, when it went away, it was replaced by all of these mass distributed media that were very different, had different relationships to the to the community and everything like that. And and yet all of those people were kind of trained in vaudeville in terms of, you know, basically our stand-up, all of our nighttime shows, those are all really variations on vaudeville theme. Yeah, you think about all the things he had to do to be a vaudeville performer. I mean, he started as just doing a rope, he was a rope, a world-class roper. So that was his thing on stage. He would just perform rope tricks. Um, and the story goes, one day he he messed up a trick and uh, I forgot what he I forgot what the joke he said was, but he said he made a comment on him fouling up this trick, and people laughed, and it uh, he took notice of their reaction, so he started messing up on purpose so we could talk about it, and then as he needed more things to talk about, he started to uh, he got to where he would read the paper in the morning, and then talk about the news while he did his rope trick, um, and then later he had the thing on the rooftop in Times Square. 
which was essentially a, it was the first late night show. It was they would have the they would have the Ziegfeld Follies, the evening show, maybe eight o'clock, and then at night the more kind of uh, just adult oriented. Adult at that time, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think back when burlesque was innocent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would be on the rooftop. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and if you were, it was a who's who thing. You had, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to be part of the in crowd, you, Will Will Rogers made fun of you, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, on these prototypes of uh, the Tonight Show or yeah, something. Yeah, so that's like a roast sort of kind yeah. of a thing, yeah. But him doing all these forms of entertainment, like they had to, they had to master all. It wasn't as compartmentalized as as uh, talent is now. One of the lines apparently that he said was "swinging a rope's all right if your neck ain't in it." <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, anything before we go that we need to we need to plug. Thank you, by the way. For, uh, oh, yeah. for hanging thanks out for with us and me. doing this tone. Yeah, and thanks for actually, you know, one of the things that I that I really like about this place where we are is I think that the music of this particular part of the world is really, in, you know, I was saying about New Orleans, I think there's something about, you know, kind of the red dirt scene and everything that is kind of the history of Oklahoma music that really stands out and is worth paying a lot of attention to. So thank you for your contributions oh, to yeah. that. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you for having me on here to talk. I don't, I don't know what to plug. It just... Just Check out the 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 Christmas record uh, Fowler VW. Oh, I do Christmas.com. Is that I right? do have something to plug. Yeah, plug uh, plug my new Christmas song called "Dark and Stormy Christmas" on the Blackwatch uh, Fowler VW Christmas compilation. I did just release a seven inch single. Oh, nice! Um, last Friday with a uh, with a local record label that I've been working with and. Um, you were talking about uh, Oklahoma music and area music. I'm really happy to be working with this label out of Oklahoma City because they've been working with other uh, area bands, and it's a nice umbrella to kind of gather everybody underneath. But um, uh, yeah, you can you can check that out at uh, you can just find me on social media is the best way to do it really. But just Bo Jennings B E A U and um, yeah, there's there's new stuff out there. Well, thanks for coming in and talking to us. It's been kind of great to see it. And, you know, again, if you're listening and you haven't uh, had a chance to check out the film or check out the music, by all means do so. That website, again, is www.thevertigrisfilm.com. Lots of good stuff out there. All right. Mm-hmm. Take it easy. Yep. See ya. Well, it's a dark and storm of Christmas. Light of flashes across my tree. Well, it's a dark and storm of Christmas, baby. I Christmas, baby, I come as a caroling. 